Hope has been defined as a confident yet uncertain expectation of achieving a future good, which to the hoping person is realistically possible and personally significant. Some health professionals believe fostering what they call realistic hope should be part of the conversation when they talk to a terminally ill person about his or her prognosis and end-of-life care. This is natural and understandable, but it's worth noting that this opinion is rooted in a belief that hope is always something positive and life-affirming. According to this viewpoint, hope is inherently virtuous and a prerequisite for creating a rosy and optimistic future for oneself. According to more than a few palliative care and cancer nursing textbooks, hope can even improve people's symptoms, their immune function, their mental health and their quality of life. Here's an excerpt from a scholarly article published in the British Medical Journal. Hope, with its built-in orientation towards the future, is a centrally important part of every person's life. Without hope, we can hardly form intentions to act or see reasons to do so. To take away a person's hope is to consign that person to despair and its concomitant paralysis of action. Sustaining hope in the patient, therefore, is an important element in all healthcare. But how are we to think about hope in the context of palliative care, where we are dealing with people who are terminally ill and who know themselves to be so? Here, as elsewhere, the welfare and quality of life of a patient is likely to be substantially better if she can maintain an attitude of hope towards achieving positive goals. And if we take seriously the dictum widely endorsed throughout palliative care that patients should live until they die, then supporting the patient's hope may seem to be an important part of the palliative carer's activities. A few years ago, University of Chicago scholars Nicholas Christakis and Elizabeth Lamont investigated the extent and determinants of prognostic error among doctors. What they learned was unnerving and astounding. They found that doctors' prognoses were accurate only 20% of the time. What's more, nearly two-thirds of doctors' predictions about patient survival were overestimates, and overall, doctors overestimated patient survival by a factor of about five. Not surprisingly, the tendency for doctors to make prognostic errors was lower among more experienced doctors. But what surprised many was that the better that doctors knew their patients, which was measured by the length and recentness of their contact, the more likely they were to make a mistake. Not only did the length of doctor-patient relationships predict more prognostic errors, but most doctors were overly optimistic meaning that doctors who had a close and long-standing association with terminally ill patients were more likely to wrongly believe that their patients had longer to live than they did. Nicholas Christakis and Elizabeth Lamont say these findings could have dire repercussions. First, a doctor's undue optimism about her patient's survival prospects might mean that she doesn't refer a patient early enough to palliative care a decision that could drastically and negatively affect a patient's quality of life. To say it another way, the failure by two out of every three doctors to predict how little remaining time a patient has left 
could mean they failed to make an appropriate referral to life-preserving medical care or palliation. Second, the failure of many doctors to predict and to communicate accurate prognostic information could mean many patients make poor treatment choices. It's been shown, for example, that terminally ill cancer patients who have overly optimistic beliefs about their survival tend to opt for more aggressive interventions that have major side effects in preference to non-aggressive palliative care where the goal is to maintain or improve quality of life. But why would a longer doctor-patient relationship affect a doctor's prognostication? And why do so many make errors on the upside by telling patients they have more time than they do? The author Stephen Jenkinson has wondered whether a long-enduring patient-doctor relationship binds a doctor to her patient's hopes, and that this may compromise her medical judgment, despite evidence to the contrary. Or perhaps something subtler is at play. Jenkinson writes, It is not the content of what is wished for, the grail of more time, that's contagious. The fact that the patient steadfastly wants what is already gone for good, often long after it's gone, perhaps that's the contagious thing. The patient's insatiable desire for what will never be makes the doctor's simple objectivity and prognosis look and feel ineffectual and impotent, even disloyal. Many a physician has been accused of giving up on patients when they attempt to refer those patients to palliative care. It looks as though sympathy and discernment are hard bedfellows. Whether hope helps terminally ill people is still unproven, despite claims that it helps them cope with impending death. So, if hope is ineffective, what if it's harmful? The harder question is, what happens when a terminally ill person's hope for a cure or remission or more time is finally obliterated in the face of looming death. By definition, hopeful dying people are never where they want to be. Their present state is intolerable because they're hoping for a better future that might come to pass, but probably won't. They have what they don't want, and they want what they haven't, which is a prescription for a world of suffering. One of Buddhism's central insights is that resistance creates mental and emotional suffering. Resistance is opposition to something, be it a thought, feeling, sensation, perception or action. It arises from a judgment that the status quo is unacceptable and that something should be done to change it. The author Eckhart Tolle has written that the mental and emotional anguish we feel is proportional to our level of resistance to reality. On this he says, The pain you create now is always some form of non-acceptance, some form of unconscious resistance to what is. On the level of thought, the resistance is some form of judgment. On the emotional level, it's some form of negativity. The intensity of the pain depends on the degree of resistance to the present moment, and this in turn depends on how strongly you are identified with your mind.
Tolle says resistance is a refusal to acknowledge and fully accept the status quo, a denial of the way things are. This resistance is always counterproductive. Even a sliver of non-acceptance or denial produces an equivalent quantum of mental and emotional pain. Tolle and others point out that when we accept reality, we drop our energetic opposition to the truth and we open ourselves to experiencing life without critique or mental commentary. Further, he suggests that if we give our attention fully to our life circumstances, without resistance or mental labelling, we can tap into what he calls the power of now. There's a large body of good evidence to show that being present and dropping our habitual mental chattering can allow us to experience mental states of peace, bliss and well-being. This approach to our life circumstances can evoke the same tranquil state as meditation because it's essentially the same practice. Being aware of what's happening while it's happening is to be present to life unfolding. Letting life be as it is without physical, mental and emotional resistance can bring us into accord with life instead of opposing it. But hope puts dying people into opposition to their circumstances. It labels the future as unacceptable or traumatic or frightening and it insists on a hoped-for future where death should be opposed or put off for another time. Dying people aren't alone in this endeavour. Often they're encouraged to be hopeful by their professional carers and loved ones. In fact, terminally ill people who don't invest in being hopeful risk being told they're depressed or that they have a negative attitude unless they join the holy bandwagon of hope. Finally, of course, the time comes when reality is undeniable and the consensus finally admits that it's okay for a dying person to die. But too often people in these circumstances must wait till they're ravaged by symptoms or the ill effects of too much medical treatment before they're allowed to do so. The tragedy is that investing in perpetual hope means dying people may never learn how to die. Even when dying is nearly upon them, they may be reaching for any means to avert what dying requires. In large part, the skyrocketing demand for antidepressants, terminal sedation and medically assisted suicide are the progeny of our culture's dogged refusal to craft a wisdom from dying. And this is why it's so hard to die at our time in human history why it's nearly impossible to be wrecked on schedule, as Stephen Jenkinson has called it. The physician, Sherwin Newland, once admitted that at times he pushed back against dying and death by refusing to let his patients die at their appointed time. He said, Death belongs to the dying and to those who love them. Though it may be sullied by the incursive havoc of disease, it must not be permitted to be further disrupted by well-meant exercises in futility. Decisions about continuation of treatment are influenced by the enthusiasm of the doctors who propose them. Commonly, the most accomplished of the specialists are also the most convinced and unyielding believers in biomedicine's ability to overcome the challenge presented by a pathological process close to claiming its victim. A family grasps at a straw that comes in the form of a statistic. But what is offered as objective clinical reality is often the subjectivity of a devout disciple of the philosophy that death 
is an implacable enemy. To such warriors, even a temporary victory justifies the laying waste of the fields in which a dying man has cultivated his life. I say these things not to condemn high-tech doctors. I've been one of them. And I've shared the excitement of last-ditch fights for life and the supreme satisfaction that comes when they are won. But more than a few of my victories have been pyrrhic suffering was sometimes not worth the success. Newland goes on to say, I also believe that had I been able to project myself into the place of the family and the patient, I would have been less often certain that the desperate struggle should be undertaken. When I have a major illness requiring highly specialised treatment, I will seek out a doctor skilled in its provision, but I will not expect of him that he understands my values, my expectations for myself, and those I love, my spiritual nature, or my philosophy of life. That is not what he is trained for, and that is not what he will be good at. It is not what drives those engines of his excellence. For those reasons, I will not allow a specialist to decide when to let go. I will choose my own way, or at least make the elements of my own way so clear that the choice, should I be unable, can be made by those who know me best. The conditions of my illness may not permit me to die well or with any of the dignity we so optimistically seek, but within the limits of my ability to control, I will not die later than I should simply for the senseless reason that a highly skilled technological physician does not understand who I am.